There are some people who see conflict all around them, and others who choose not to acknowledge it at all. But according to organizational psychologist and author of Optimal Outcomes, Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, the first step is stopping to notice your own patterns so you can see more clearly how the conflicts in your life affect the world around you. In this Hack the Process interview, Jen will tell us about the continuing role mentorship has had in her career, what strategies helped her pivot smoothly between professional and academic careers, and how her family history inspired her to study conflict resolution. Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Jennifer Goldman Wetzler, and she is an organizational psychologist and consultant and the author of a new book called Optimal Outcomes. Jen, how are you doing today? Doing great, David. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm really interested in talking with you about optimal outcomes and conflict resolution, which I think is something that a lot of people have some experience with. And I'm really curious about your perspective on that. Just the word conflict, I think, triggers a lot of images in people's minds. Yeah, the word conflict, and what does it trigger in people? Well, there is a part of the book where I talk about the language that we use and how impactful it can be. So that even just using the word conflict to describe a situation can leave a person feeling worse about that situation because we have all of these, typically we have negative associations with the word conflict, like fight, disagreement. And so it can be very powerful to look at your language and change it in an experimental way and see what does that do. So if you call something a situation, or if you call someone, you know, my brother, instead of that, you know, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> right? It, these all have have ramifications for how we experience our situation. So I typically, when I come into a situation with people who are not seeing eye to eye, I will just naturally use language that can help them lighten the situation just a little bit and not see it as such a heavy, heavy thing. That makes sense. I could see that kind of reframing of the situation. The reason I bring it up, I think, is because right on the cover of your book, right above the title is the word conflict. And it focuses in on that audience interested in conflict, which is what made me bring up why you chose to do that. Well, I've spent 20 years studying and working with people in conflict settings. And so <laughs> that's what I mean, the book is undeniably about how you can free yourself from situations where you have not been able to work things out. It's it's a book all about when you've tried and you've tried to quote unquote resolve conflict and your efforts have failed. So this is not, you know, conflict resolution 101. This book is really about what to do when conflict resolution 101 or even 2.0 or 3.0 doesn't work. This is how to free yourself from that conflict loop that just keeps going around and around in circles. What kinds of situations have you come into that have uh, really led you to that 2.0 and 3.0 level of conflict? Any situation, whether it's with a client or on the home front or in a community setting, any situation where at least one, if not multiple 
people involved in the situation have tried and tried and tried to resolve it and it doesn't go away. So if you think about two co-founders of an organization and they've just been butting heads for years and everyone in the whole organization knows about their relationship and that it's not doing well and yet they just continue because the pain of walking away for either one of them would be so great. Or if you think about you know, in the home context, partners who have the same fight every single day or every, you know, every few days about the dishes in the sink, right? Or the childcare situation that's not working for them or whatever it is, you know, you can have the same fight over and over again. So this book is really all about how to free yourself from that. And in the book, there are two stories that run throughout the whole book where I apply each of the eight practices in the book to those stories. One story is about me and my mom, and the other story is about a client of mine and his top salesperson. So he's the CEO of a startup company in New York City and his top salesperson. And they had been in a huge screaming match on a New York City street corner and had not spoken to each other for six months when I started working with him. And he was able to free himself and thereby free her from the situation and of course, free the entire organization as well from their previous dynamic. Wow. So this is yeah, it's very relatable both to people in their personal lives as well as, as in their business context and the deep intractable conflicts that just don't seem to resolve themselves any other way. That's right. And you mentioned eight practices. Is, is it a sequence of practices or are they eight, in, in eight isolated practices that can be applied? They're not isolated at all. They are all interconnected with each other. And in fact, the practices in the book balance one another out, many of them. So people will notice that in the beginning of the book, you're asked to simply notice the situation as it stands today, which in and of itself can be a very freeing experience just to notice because so often typically we, you know, we, we're scrambling around trying to do, 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 fix, 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 resolve, resolve, resolve. And yet our efforts have, are not working and we're banging our heads up against the wall, the proverbial wall, trying to do something. And so just having the capacity to take a step back and observe our own habits, our own conflict habits in the situation and to observe the pattern that we've gotten stuck in with someone else. So our habit interacts with their habit to create a pattern of interaction that keeps us stuck on the conflict, what I call the conflict loop. So the first couple of, of chapters in the book, the first two practices are all about just noticing what's going on. And then the final chapters in the book are all about testing and taking what I call a pattern-breaking path. And that requires action and courage. So these balance each other. This is just one example of balancing practices where if you only act and you don't reflect, you're likely to act in ways that are going to cause more conflict. For, and same, the opposite is also true. If you only observe and don't eventually act with courage, you know, the observation is helpful, but it only goes so far. You need to actually act. It's uh, very insightful that you start with noticing, because I think a lot of people have that cognitive dissonance in their heads where they don't even want to recognize the conflicts that are going on around them sometimes. Yes. I always say people fall typically into two groups. When I ask, whenever I give a talk about this work, I always want people to have it be really relevant to them. So I always say, let's take a moment. And in the beginning of the book, I have a whole section all about take a moment to think of a situation that you know about. It could be one in your own life. It could be one that you are helping other people with, or it could be something you know about just from watching the news but let's ground it in your real experience. And people fall into one of two groups. Either people say, oh my gosh, I have so much conflict in my life. I don't even know where to begin. Which one should I choose? 
And then other people are, you know, the complete opposite, which is conflict. I don't have any conflict in my life. I don't know what you're talking about. There's nothing for me to choose. So for both groups, just to stop and notice, let's think. For that second group, it can be particularly helpful just to say, look, it doesn't have to be something that is quote unquote conflict. It could just be a recurring nuisance, something that has come up again and again, and you've tried, you or other people have tried to resolve it, and it's not going away. It's true for a group like that. The word conflict itself can trigger so many different responses that they might just be blocking all of that out. You go on to talk about increasing the the clarity around the situation. Can you tell us a little bit about how you encourage people to do that? Yeah. There's a practice called conflict mapping, where I ask people to put down on a piece of paper, and actually there is a link on my website where people can actually go online. So if you go to optimaloutcomesbook.com slash map or slash resources, either one will get you there. You can create a map online with some very cool conflict mapping software. So I hope people will use that. So the first thing to do, whether you're doing this on paper and pencil or on a screen, is to just put down who the people are that are most obviously involved in the situation that you're thinking about. But then I want you to add as many people, places, things, factors, events that have either influenced the situation or may be influenced by the situation in the present, past, potential future, and start to build a more complex map. Because typically, when we're stuck in this kind of recurring conflict, it's not just one. It often seems like it's just between two people or two groups when it's usually much more complex. So getting this down on paper can lead to all kinds of insights and ahas about people on the map who might be helpful or have leverage for change. Or sometimes it really raises our empathy for ourselves and for others when we notice who's on this map in a different way than we did before. Both the the factors that influence the situation itself and then also the numbers of people who are influenced by the situation can be eye-opening. Now, where did this approach come from? I learned it from my mentor, one of my mentors, Dr. Peter Coleman, who is the head of the International Center for Cooperation and Conflict Resolution at Teachers College at Columbia University. And he used it in the context of his work in dynamical systems theory. So I've also seen this work done in network analysis and network theory, people in government. You know, I've seen some extremely, I used to show a slide of a map of the U.S. engagement in Afghanistan, and it was just, you know, unbelievably complex. So the U.S. military has really created some some pretty complex slides showing how people and, and groups are related from a military standpoint. What was it that attracted you to this area of study? Yeah, so I grew up in a family of screamers and door slammers. And so I had to learn from a very young age how to deal with conflict in my family of origin. And speaking of balancing, I had the balance of my grandmother, Florence, who just by her very presence was able to calm the rest of us down. And then sometimes she would even use her voice, but typically she would just be saying some short word like, sha, sha, that was her Yiddish way of saying, shh, be quiet. And then she would tell us a story, my brother and me. 
And so I think it was the combination of growing up in a family where I needed to learn how to deal with conflict from a very young age and having this model of, I call my grandma Florence, the first conflict whisperer that I knew of. And so she really taught me how to be that presence for people. So when I work with people in organizations, I've been told that sometimes just my presence being there with them shifts the dynamic in the room. And the whole book is all about helping people learn how to be that presence for themselves in their own lives. You come from a family of more forceful and aggressive people that the tone that you bring to this conversation, at least, is very smooth and very calm and very calming. And I recognize the influence probably of your grandmother in that. Yes, yes. And, you know, I have it all inside of me. So there are moments where my angry self comes out and, you know, it is not pretty and it does not sound calm at all. And I think that is what has allowed me to be helpful to people who have have anger issues or to deal with both other people's anger and their own anger is because I know it from firsthand experience. So it's like I've got it all all inside of me as as we all do. I've known people who were responding to families that had that kind of a background who either recede from conflict completely or embody it completely. And it's it's a different approach to be able to get outside of it and help other people with their conflicts. Yeah, I mean, there was a point when I was in college where I made a very conscious choice to go into the field of conflict. And I was naturally drawn to it. I mean, I remember sitting on the floor with the course catalog in college and just going, you know, nope, nope, no. It was a bit like a process of elimination, like history, nope, poli sci, nope, you know, and just coming down to social psychology. So I majored in social psychology and I was lucky to be at Tufts that had a program. I will had some courses in conflict resolution and had connections at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, which was on Tufts undergrad campus. So I was able to take classes there. And Tufts was part of the consortium of the program of negotiation, which was housed physically at Harvard Law School, but there were nice connections. And so, so that's really when I began in the field. That's nice. And it sounds to me like those associations in college bridged you in, right into your career then. Yes. So I studied for my junior year abroad in Jerusalem, which I consider both the city of peace and also the city of conflict, depending on your perspective, and learned more about the Middle East conflict and Israel-Palestine then, and then came back and took the undergrad course in conflict resolution at that time, and then knew that I wanted to get into the field. And so it took me a couple of years, but I eventually did end up working at the program of negotiation at Harvard Law School as a facilitator in their executive education programs, and also as on the teaching team for the first year law students, and then led negotiation programs for a nonprofit affiliated with the program on negotiation and for and ended up being an associate at a for-profit. So really, you know, started from a young age and then came back and did my PhD in organizational psychology with a focus on intractable conflict in New York at Columbia, because I knew that I wanted to explore, you know, if I had five years to just sit back and do research in this field, what would I have to say about the work? So one of the challenging things I think a lot of people find is that when they go farther and farther into the academia, they have a hard time bridging that into the for-profit or even the non-profit business world. How did you manage that transition? Well, it was a very conscious choice at the end of my five years. So I spent five years doing research 
at Columbia that was funded by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. And I had to have some kind of funding because I knew that I could not both work and do a, a full-time PhD program at the exact same time. So I did pull back to some degree from my consulting work that I had been doing before I started the program and really did dive, take a deep dive into research. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity to do that because it really allowed me to understand academia and learn about research in a very deep way. And what happened was after five years of studying the complex causes of intractable conflict, I realized I could literally have spent the rest of my life looking just at the causes of conflict from an academic perspective, and I would have never had anything to say about how we can get ourselves out of conflict. So I've now spent the last 13 years answering that question of how can we get ourselves out, and I've done that through practice and also through a bit of research, not academic research, and through the writing of the book. But, you know, the choice at the end of those five years to, you know, really was a choice. Did I want to go the academic route or did I want to go the practice route? And I chose the practice route. And also the program that I graduated from has a focus on helping people do applied work. So that was also an important choice point at the beginning of the program, at the beginning of those five years as well, was that I chose not to go into a program that is specifically gearing people towards only academic careers, because I had thought I would want to go into practice at the end. And I can see how that follows logically from the way that you were approaching it. And you took yourself back from the work world where you'd been doing some consulting back into academia to pursue your PhD. And you managed to get the Department of Homeland Security to fund that. And that's something I'm sure a lot of people are curious about. And uh, it's a difficult thing to do. And I think there are people out there who might want to do something similar. How did you manage that? Well, I had applied for a National Science Foundation grant, which is a very similar program. It's been in existence for much longer. So this was 2002. So it was a year after 9-11 attacks. And I was studying conflict. And in particular, I was studying the role that humiliation, the emotion of humiliation plays in exacerbating long-term conflict. And so the U.S. Department of Homeland Security had happened to have decided to fashion its new fellowship program. I mean, it was literally the entire U.S. Department of Homeland Security was less than a year old at that time. And they decided to create this fellowship program to help people do applied research on behalf of the government. And I was able to use the application that I had done for the National Science Foundation, where I had gotten a honorable mention, but that did not come along with any funding and said, you know, we can really apply this to terrorist activity and look at if we humiliate people around the world, what are they likely to do? Are they more or less likely to aggress against other people if they feel humiliated? And so it was applied research that the government apparently was interested in. And I ended up doing a couple of internships there in D.C. and learned about how research gets done and gets funded inside of the, the U.S. government, which was pretty interesting as well. I love it because what you were interested in studying aligned very well with a major need from a huge power in the world, which is the United States government. And you were able to make that association so that they were able to fund what you were interested in doing next. Yeah. What deliverable were they expecting from you in order to justify the investment? So a dissertation and the internships, that was a requirement of the fellowship. One of the requirements was, of course, to graduate and finish and complete your dissertation and submit the dissertation to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security Fellowship, and then also to do these internships. 
Okay, so that's that's good to know, because that means that once you were finished and you graduated and you had done your dissertation, you didn't have further obligations beyond that. No, there were really very few strings attached. And the only strings that were attached were, I thought, such win-win. I mean, it was so mutually beneficial for these, myself included, young people to be going into government and doing these internships and learning how government works, and then also for the government to benefit from our research and to have an ongoing. I mean, I'm still in touch 20 years later with the people who I worked with in those internships. It also speaks to something that comes from the world of venture capital. When uh, startups are seeking venture capitalists to work with, they should always be looking for ones whose work aligns really closely with the kind of work that the business is trying to do so that the money comes also with connections and with relationships that can benefit you down the road. Right. Great point. So, but after you finished, after you'd gotten your PhD, you went back into the business world. Yes, I did. I I started my own company, Alignment Strategies Group, which is still going strong many years later. And we work with CEOs and their senior teams to help them optimize their organizational health and growth, the vitality of their organizations. And we do that in many different ways. We help through coaching and we help through facilitation of difficult conversations and we help through large meeting facilitation as well. So yes, so I did. I've I've been in consulting with corporate, nonprofit, academic institutions for a long time. Did you start that up as an individual business or were you working with anybody else? So it's been my business. I am the CEO and the founder. And over the years, I've grown the business so that I have people who work with me when there's a large project that needs more than just me to fulfill the contract. So typically, we'll work with an intact senior team. And so we'll typically have a group of coaches coaching multiple people on that team individually. And then we'll also facilitate conversations between two people on the team, for example, or two other people on the team. And then we'll also facilitate team-wide meetings as well, so that when people show up to those meetings, they are showing up in you know the best way possible because they've each got a coach who's helping them. So we have a team that can expand as needed. That's great. So you've got, uh, it basically started off as a solopreneur venture, and then you expanded out bringing in the people who were able to support different pieces. And probably you've got a regular team of folks you go to on a regular basis for, for the different components that are needed. Right. That's right. Starting a business like that can be very tricky. I mean, freshly out of college, you've got your PhD. How did you make that transition from I'm a, I'm a new graduate to now I have a business that is out there and supporting me? Quite slowly. <laughs> <laughs> so putting one foot in front of the next and, you know, building relationships, really all of my business has been based on people being happy with the work and word of mouth and referring us one to the next to the next. And that's how it goes. So when you do good work, you know, it, it helps, but also patience and the ability to be patient is key. And not everyone, you know, I, I feel incredibly fortunate that I was able to build slowly. Not everyone has that capacity but glad that I was able to make it work. Oh, absolutely. And uh, sometimes the the ability to go slowly and build the thing the way that you need it to be built so that it supports you, that's invaluable. And I don't think everybody has that opportunity. But you were coming off of a situation where you had some relationships probably with people in government, and they might have helped facilitate some of those early relationships with clients. Yeah, a lot of my relationships were actually from my days in Boston before coming back to do my PhD. But it's true. I mean, so I had built a career over about six years before coming back to do my PhD, where I had relationships and 
you know, a whole network and then continued to build that network in New York with, you know, in PhD land and then kind of put those together to then come out of the PhD program and build the business. So absolutely, it's all about relationships. And one of the things that I did to support myself as I was building my own business was to work for other people's firms as a subcontractor to them. So I've had a lot, lot, lot of experience working as a coach or working as a facilitator on behalf of other people's boutique consulting firms. And so I, you know, learned here's what works well for me. Here's what doesn't work well for me. Here's how I want to do it based on how, you know, the things that I like about how this firm operates. Here's how I don't want to do it based on what I don't like about the way this firm operates this idea of taking a job for somebody else, it doesn't always have to be an end in itself. It seems like it can be a stepping stone to building something for yourself. Right. As long as you're committed to learning as much as you can from whatever situation you're in. And with the work that you were doing, was all of this centered around conflict resolution? No, no. I mean, much of it was centered around leadership more broadly. A lot of the work that I did was about innovation. And so there are very clear overlaps between the optimal outcomes method and also methods about innovation, which have a lot to do. The innovation methods that I learned and taught had a lot to do with paradoxical leadership and learning how to lead in a, in a both-and world where you're both promoting existing businesses while at the same time helping companies innovate so that companies are constantly innovating and creating new offerings so that if their existing business should get disrupted, they've got something new that they are also able to do. And so there's a lot of overlap between the conflict work that I do and that innovation work. I don't think I've heard the term paradoxical leadership. Is that the term you used? Yes. Well, one of my colleagues, Wendy Smith, who works with me at Alignment Strategies Group, her work, her research is all about paradox. And she does this innovation work, helping leaders, CEOs, leaders of all kinds of different organizations think strategically about how they can manage the paradoxes involved in strategic leadership, particularly about how to continue the business that we're in today while also innovating for tomorrow. So today versus tomorrow. But another one of the paradoxes that she works with is bottom line and social good. And how how do we manage that tension? And I think increasingly today, what we're seeing is that that's not people are not even experiencing that necessarily as a tension. If we look at companies like Salesforce and others who are showing so clearly how doing one benefits the other and vice versa. It's true. I think that people might have thought at one point that that was impossible, but now I think they're starting to realize that that's essential. Right, exactly. And yet it can still be so hard to do. <laughs> so people still need to learn how to do it. But I think there is the intellectual acceptance that we've had that turning point. I've heard people call that the distinction between management and leadership and the need to do both at the same time. Yeah, that's another interesting tension. I've never thought about management and leadership as a tension, but I agree with you. I have for many years thought of it as these are two different things. They're related to each other, but you need to be clear that when you're doing one versus when you're doing the other. I think that when, when I've seen it most is when I've seen people who are leaders who also have management responsibilities, meaning that the conflict between the need to lead toward a, a long-term vision while still maintaining the day-to-day -day function of their teams and keeping everybody on their team developing along the path that that person wants to follow, while nonetheless keeping the organization as a whole moving forward, uh, sometimes in great leaps that are difficult to span with the single steps that sometimes people need to make. 
Yes, you just described so beautifully why management and leadership can be very much attention for people. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love the term paradoxical leadership. I'm going to start using that and I'm going to research that as well. We'll include a link in the show notes to to that uh, research if it's out there. Yes, Wendy Smith, Wendy K. Smith. Absolutely. It's so the work that you're doing now, uh, you're you're running your own business and you have a team, but not a permanent team then. Right. It's a very flexible team. It's a team of subcontractors who I can pull on and off of projects as needed, which gives us just a ton of flexibility to be able to bring people onto very, very large projects. And also for me to sometimes work just with one leader at a time. And it's a great business model. How do you source your business these days? It's all word of mouth and it's all, you know, I guess now that the book has launched and I'm doing speaking about the book, there are now leads coming in from people like just today, actually, somebody sent me an email because they hadn't even spoken yet at the venue that they were talking about, but they were planning to come to the event and they emailed me to see if we could provide some coaching for their leaders. So I think that, you know, speaking may become you know, a new way of engaging new clients, but typically it's all been word of mouth. Have you been speaking before this or is this uh, speaking new to you? I've done a lot of speaking in the past, but I guess not on a regular basis. So the speaking that I've done is as a professor at Columbia University and, you know, Google Talk and TEDx Talk and things like that. But with the book launch, I'm doing more speaking than I ever have before and will plan to continue it. Although, you know, in the in the new normal that we're living in, a lot of that speaking that I thought was going to be requiring me to travel around the globe may actually end up being more from my, you know, home office on a webinar. It's been fascinating to see how the world is adapting to to remote work, remote speaking, remote living. Yes, right. I think the more we do it, the more people realize that it has a lot of benefits, not the least of which is being gentler on our earth until we figure out how to fly airplanes without all of that gasoline, which I'm really hoping, speaking of innovation, I'm really hoping that people are working on that as we speak so that we can be gentler on our earth while enjoying our earth. But yes, I think we're going to discover that there's a lot more we can do virtually than we ever thought. It is helping break down some of the geographic barriers to for people who might want to work with somebody, but they're halfway across the country or halfway around the world. Have, have you been running your business primarily face to face? And is that changing now? I've always done both. I mean, I will tell you, I had a coaching client a number of years ago where we were not even on video. We were on the phone. And this was some of the most intimate work that I have ever done to this day. And I think some of the intimacy about it was that it felt so safe for my client because he could say anything he wanted to me and know that first of all, it was going to be like a vault and stay with me, but also that it was just a very different type of experience because we were not face-to-face because I wasn't coming into his office and everyone else wasn't seeing me there. So I've been doing all kinds of creative solutions for a very long time to be helpful to people. And I also have found for many years that doing coaching on video face to face, it can again seem much more intimate. When you, you know, when you're looking at someone at the pores on someone's face because their face is so close up to the screen, you don't get that in real life often, right? You're sitting a little farther away. And there's an intensity that I think also people are experiencing. I was just reading something where someone said, you know, the intensity of being on a Zoom call, particularly with one that is not hordes and hordes of people, is that you really are expected to be focused 
and not be looking away and not be distracted, even in a way that perhaps being in person doesn't afford. So I've, I've done all kinds of work remotely for a long time. I've, I've talked to a number of coaches and I've heard both sides of that equation. Some people are having a lot of trouble adapting to remote work. And some people find that it's such a natural transition that it's been a natural part of what they've been doing all along. I'm curious, since you now have a network of people you bring in to work with you, if you've noticed those differences among the people you're working with. I think most of the people who I hire are people who are very adaptable and are happy to work virtually and also in person. I mean, there's also an efficiency to, you know, I guess the people that I surround myself with are similar to me in that we appreciate being, you know, appreciate the efficiency. And so it also for a long time has been one way that we've allowed clients to use budgets that are not so robust. So if I say to someone, you know, if you want me in person, that's going to require more of my time, more of my travel, me coming to you versus if you want to just work remotely, we can, you know, offer you a certain discount. And so I guess so the people that I hire to work with me have been flexible and able to do all, all the, you know, run the gamut from, all right, this, this one is completely in person to this engagement is completely online. Do you find that that's different when you're doing one-on-one -on -one coaching versus when you're trying to coach teams or organizations? Yeah, I think for me, the one-on-one -on -one coaching is certainly easier than facilitating a whole team meeting online. That said, I have done it. It is more challenging, but it's not impossible. And I've certainly done three-way meetings where it's me more or less I don't, again, because of the reframing of language that we were talking about before, I call these things three-way meetings, not mediations, but you could call it a mediation. <laughs> and so I've, I've actually done those on Zoom and again, can be very, very intimate and really even allow for people to have their own experience, shut off the Zoom, and then, you know, they can have their emotional needs met afterwards. They can crumble, they can cry, they can do whatever they need to do, and they don't have to worry about running out of the room or, you know, the tears running down the face or whatever. So it can be helpful. So I wanted to bring you back to your book, because one of the interesting things that I've noticed with a lot of people who have academic backgrounds is that the shift to writing something for a more popular audience can be challenging. And I'm curious if you found that. Well, I've always been a very applied person. I've always wanted to make sure that whatever I do can be applied. So no, that was not a major challenge for me. I mean, I don't know, maybe I'm forgetting now at the beginning of the process, the transition from writing like an academic to writing more like a popular author would. There might have been some some in there where I had to learn how to stop, you know, I think with the references, <laughs> like now I am remembering my editor at Harper Business said like, you know what, you don't need references in there. But then, of course, at the whole end of the process, then it was time to add back in a lot of references. And so, you know, I ended up having to do that all in one fell swoop at the end. So now I enjoy making things in plain English so that people can actually benefit from it and understand how to use it. You've also been a columnist with uh, Psychology Today, right? Yes. Yes. Really enjoying that work. It's been very fulfilling. There's good engagement. How long have you been doing that? Not a long time. That also has been relatively recent. It's just been a couple of a couple of few months. So this is interesting. So you're kind of at a transition point in your career where you've been working with clients and doing a lot of work from that. Before that, you were doing academic work. Now you're doing popular writing and popular speaking. I'm curious how that transition is affecting the way that you approach your work. 
Well, we shall see. Your guess is going to be as good as mine at this point. <laughs> but, you know, I did decide that I was ready for something new. You know, it was 10 years of being down in the trenches, rolling up my sleeves alongside clients and many, many, many of them. Sometimes, you know, working with so many people that it was overwhelming for me. But I learned so much from doing all of that work and then really felt like it was time for the next phase of my career. And so decided to hunker down and spend time writing, writing the book and wanted to pivot, you know, my career into adding the speaking component. And so it's been, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of learning. And that is exactly what I wanted to be. So if people who are listening to this ever, if you ever have that gut feeling of, hey, I want to try something new, but I have no idea what it is, or, you know, what if it doesn't work out or whatever, it can be helpful to listen to that small voice inside and trust it and follow it as long as you're willing to learn. It's always worth trying. And one of the things you mentioned early on was that you had a mentor in academia. I'm curious if there were any mentors who helped you with that transition in your own professional life now. Well, one of my very close friends, who's been a friend of mine from the very beginning, right when I graduated from college and started working at PON, Erica Fox, she wrote a book. Her book came out in 2013, and she went on the speaking circuit, and I watched her pivot and do that from consulting. And so, and she continues to consult as well, but she has been a very helpful mentor guiding the way shining the light for me for many, many, for my whole career, really, and also in particular the last few years. And then there are also people who I don't know very well who have kind of appeared along the path to help me navigate. So Rachel O'Meara is someone who brought me in to speak at Google and do that Google Talk a number of years ago now and has continued to shine the light and pave the way and introduce me to people. And she's been great as well. And I'm sure there are many, many others who I'm not thinking of at the moment who have been incredibly helpful. Again, it speaks to the value of establishing relationships and letting that help guide the direction in your career and it really nurture you as you move forward. Yeah, absolutely. I have a feeling that the people who've been listening to this are going to want to find out more about your book and about your speaking. And where can I send them to find out more information? Well, the best place is optimaloutcomesbook.com. That has all the resources, the conflict mapping software, and so many more resources. There's about 12 different templates and quizzes that you can you can take a quiz to diagnose your conflict habit and your emotion traps and lots of fun stuff on the website to be helpful to you. And then also on LinkedIn at Jen Goldman Wetzler and on all the social media platforms. So Facebook and Twitter and Instagram as well. Well, Jen, it's been a pleasure talking with you. And thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I will look forward to seeing what people have to say about this. And uh, I want your feedback about this show as well when you get a chance. Thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>